So what do you do if you're sitting at home? You have a job, but you're kind of strapped by inflation. So what's the takeaway here? What's the long-term I mean, you should be you, hearing? You know about? what? It, it's so interesting because this time, you know, a year ago, the president could look at these numbers and tout them and sort of boast about them. Now that's completely changed because the name of the game is inflation. You've got ordinary Americans paying more in terms of higher gas prices, food prices, even though they saved so much during the pandemic, they're now eating into those savings. Well, what do you say to those families who say, Listen, we can't afford to pay $4.85 a gallon for months, if not years. This is just not sustainable. Well, what you heard from the president today was a clear articulation of the stakes. This is about the future of the liberal world order, and we have to stand firm. Hold Half that. of that increase started prior to the first Russian soldiers arriving near Ukraine. You can't blame it all on the Ukraine, right? What about the other half? Well, that yeah, was, what about the other half? No, that's, that, that's a pretty that, important that, half. Well, then, yeah, but, but the, that, that half about, before look, we had run is. up, you, the, your administration has blamed this on the, 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 you know, the war, and that was certainly a big factor. But gas prices had gone up very fifty percent already before the war. So to me, that's half yeah. of the blame. Based on our investigative units reporting, the U.S. attorney in Delaware has been probing a number of issues. They include tax fraud, tax evasion, money laundering, as well as whether Hunter James Biden and their business associates complied with foreign lobbying laws. What I can also tell you based on our reporting is that there's a lot of noise and, and static in the system. Based on my experience, that could be an indicator of conversations and discussions between the two parties on whether they can reach some kind of plea agreement. But do you think it's possible that your plan just is not popular with the American people right now? I don't think it's that our plan is not popular with the American people. We know that the American people are feeling um, the high cost. We understand what they are feeling. Because, because when you look at inflation, when we look at where we are economically, and we are in a strong, uh, we are stronger economically than we have been uh, in history. When you look at the unemployment numbers at 3.6%, uh, when you look at the jobs numbers, uh, more than 8.7 million of, of new jobs created, that is important. But we understand that gas prices are high and we understand that food costs are high. And that is because of a once-in-a-generation once pandemic and also Putin's war, and that's just the fact. Welcome back, everybody, to the Better Late Than Never Unregulated podcast. This is Friday afternoon, uh, July 8th, and President Biden is either already on his way or already in Delaware for the weekend. I'm your co-host, Tom Pyle. And I'm Fred Garvin. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back, Michael. How's it going? Going pretty good. What episode are we on now? This is number 91. Thank you for the reminder. 91 of these bad boys, my friend. 91 of them. And they said it would never last. <laughs> All right. Um, what are your announcements, if any, today, sir? Uh, I want to thank everybody for reminding us that we were late in getting this done. It's good to have fans. Um, and to um, one of our very special fans, I want to let him know that we are, in fact, working on getting the pic, getting a photograph taken and getting it signed and getting it to him. So and anybody out there, anybody else out there who, of course, wants a signed autograph picture or an autograph picture, let us know. We'll probably send it out to you, too. Sounds good. Uh, I have a couple of quick announcements. Uh, as you heard, Joe Biden's economy is roaring. 372,000 jobs. Uh, they are so proud of those jobs numbers, man. It's just, it's just amazing. I have a new listener, uh, or theoretically a new listener, uh, met, met with my cousin this week. Uh, and this is my other cousin's brother who she's been, April's been pounding on him to listen to the show. So Joe, welcome to the club. Hopefully you'll enjoy these, or at least you'll text me and tell me why you disagree with almost everything I agree agree with. So uh, that's all I have for announcements, big guy. What do you, uh, where do you want to start today? Your call entirely. It's, you know, it, 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 we could we could start at the, at the world's greatest economy, or we could do something else. Which would you prefer? All right, wait. You know what? Let me let me bang out this day in history. This is an easy one for you, since we are uh, in and around uh, that very important, uh, um, uniquely American holiday. This was this day in history in 1776. July 8th, huh? 
July 8th, 1776. Yes, the declaration was read to the populace of Philadelphia for the first time. Ding, 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 ding. And, and ding, 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 ding. What else happened was that the Liberty Bell rang uh, on, uh, in, in, in the Pennsylvania State House, which is now Independence Hall, summoning citizens to the first public reading of, yes, the Declaration of Independence. Uh, four days because Congress adopted it, um, but they had to get it to the printer. One so, little, one little so bit of color. They couldn't tweet it out. They couldn't tweet it out, Mike. They, well, maybe, maybe next time. The one little bit of color that's I always found fascinating about this, upon the reading, which happened outside of Constitution Hall, um, the, um, the crowd surged into it, and on the Pennsylvania side, because that's where the Pennsylvania legislature used to meet. On the Pennsylvania side of the hall was a um, portrait of the king. The crowd surged through that, grabbed the portrait, and lit it on fire. So, well, there you go. Peaceful protests in 1776. Yeah, I don't think it was too peaceful. They kind of busted up a bunch of stuff too. <laughs> uh, well, there's a couple of fast facts here. Um, the name was first. The name Liberty Bell was first coined in an 1839 poem from an abolitionist pamphlet. And there's a, there seems to be a question about how it got its famous fracture. Well, the most commonly accepted account was that it suffered a major break while tolling for the funeral of the Chief Justice of the United States, John Marshall, in 1835. And it was expanded uh, to its present size when it marked Washington's birthday in 1846 so there you have it folks this day in history i i i fully approve the idea that the commonwealth of pennsylvania um, has set aside an honored place for a bell that was busted up tolling for the um to commemorate two virginians so that's good i'm appreciative okay so i want to do one more this week in history yeah and i'll play this clip for you is the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan now inevitable? No. The likelihood there's going to be the Taliban overrunning everything and owning the whole country is highly unlikely. Your own intelligence community has assessed that the Afghan government will likely collapse. That is not true. They clearly have the capacity to sustain the government. Do you see any parallels between this withdrawal and what happened in Vietnam with some people feeling- None whatsoever. There's gonna be no circumstance where you see people being lifted off the roof of a embassy in the, of the United States from Afghanistan. That press conference was one year ago today, Mike. Was it really? Yeah, it seemed longer, right? Yeah. It, and uh, 11, was it 11 lives later? 13. 13, 13 Marines. I do recall also uh, there was a, a bit of a redux of the airlift from Vietnam. Let's put it this way. The airlift from Vietnam was a hell of a lot more organized than this thing. Because at, at, least, at least in 1975, we got out a significant chunk of our allies. You know, this, 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 this disaster last year, we didn't get hardly anybody out. Yeah, there was literally that 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 all started to unravel eleven days after that press conference. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, President Which Biden was President a month Biden. before you declared peak Biden. Uh, you're you're welcome. <laughs> you're welcome. If you matter, by the way, but you know, just another example of. I actually, I got a, a query for our listeners. Send us examples of any time. Anytime Joe Biden has gotten it right on foreign policy, just give me an example. I'll take anything. I'll take anything. Winner gets a t-shirt. It's <laughs> one of our one of our used ones, probably. Yeah, yeah, because we're running pretty low. So, <laughs> so this one thing I wanted to get to uh, that I missed last week. I wanted to do it last week before the Fourth of July. Uh, this was. Uh, from June 29th, uh, Woody Williams, the last surviving Medal of Honor recipient from World War II, passed away. For all, he was the 472nd um, 
from that war. So all 472 MOH recipients from World War II have now gone to rest. God rest your God rest your soul, Woody Williams. Yeah, you know, we're we're back. That war is now 77 years in the rearview mirror. It's hard to think about this this way, but um, for perspective, we are now further away from the from the end of World War II than um, Pearl Harbor was from Appomattox. Just to give you some sense of how far away we are, um, where we're we are unmoored now from that great victory and now have to construct our own great victories. And that's, um, that's pretty daunting, right? That, that group of people did some pretty significant things. Yeah, no doubt about it. Uh, and it's, a lot of it is lost on, on the general populace at this point. Well, I don't want to say lost. Let me, let me, let me use a different phrase. A lot of it is intentionally obscured by our educational system. How about if we say it that way? That is true. That is true. All right. Uh, where should we go here? Foreign policy or energy world? What do you want? What do you want to tackle first? Let's go to energy world. First. Energy world. All right. Uh, all right. I'm going to start out with this doozy. This was a uh, Bloomberg clip <laughs> with uh, I think this has been making the rounds. So you're going to be very familiar with it. So. The president over the weekend said this, my message to the companies running gas stations and setting prices at the pump is simple. This is a time of war and global peril. Bring down the price you are charging at the pump to reflect the cost you're paying for the product and do it now. Jeff Bezos came out and tweeted the following. I'm sure you read it. Inflation is far too important a problem for the White House to keep making statements like this. It's either straight ahead misdirection or a deep misunderstanding of basic market dynamics. I'm not going to accuse you of the latter. I want to talk about the former. Where's that messaging coming from? The president has made clear that his number one goal is delivering for the American people. We are in a time of crisis. We are in a time of war where, where the president and our allies, we are supporting the Ukrainian people. Congress is engaged in this effort, both sides of the aisle, to say this is an important priority. And one of the consequences is this high price of oil because of global trends. You can answer his important and, question. Everyone, Heather, everyone in the nation wants to know the answer to the question Mr. Farrell just asked you, which is who is advising the president on shockingly naive price theory over a gallon of gas. So the president is not shockingly naive, and we are in this moment of global crisis in terms of energy, and he is using the tools at his disposal, disposal to make sure that the prices that people pay at the pump are fair. So what we know in oil prices is that the prices can, um, uh, they can rise very quickly. It can take a long time for those prices to recalibrate and to come back down. And he's saying, do that faster. You have the capacity to do so. You're making profits. But the important thing is that he's using the tools at his disposal, given this very challenging this, situation. Central hey, they went on to go talk about how this is. So what's it going to be? Central planning or markets and blah, blah, blah. Oh, but... They're so bad at this. And you know what? It's, <laughs> it, it's not just that they have nobody on premises who understands anything. As we have said now, I don't know, for probably about the last 45 episodes, they have nobody who understands energy at all. Um, it, they're not even good at like pitching stuff. They're not even good at messaging. They're terrible at this stuff. They're awful. It is the, it's the worst. It's the worst presidency I've ever seen. I mean, he, he that's Heather Bushy from the Council of Economic Advisors, and of course, earlier in the. Um, well, what uh, difference does it make? It could be the first yeah. lady. It could be the no, I, I get intern it. they picked off the street. They're all equally terrible. I get that part, uh, and I don't know if you were if you knew who the. I'm sure you guessed who my uh a friend from uh the, who who made the liberal world order comment in the earlier set of clips was our buddy brian deese well you're a huge so. brian deese fan and and you know the the it, okay so so brian deese probably has no ability to claim that he's not telling the truth he's not not telling the truth here it he knows that gas prices have increased almost every day since this guy's been pre since President Biden's been president, yeah, you know, the, since before there were Russian soldiers anywhere in Ukraine, before any of this who wrong, and you know the other thing, and this is some, this is a, I think it's an unintentional lie, but I don't know, maybe it's an intentional lie. The reality of it is Russian oil is um, not only coming to market, but more Russian oil is coming to market now than was coming to market at the beginning of the war, so. 
there's no way that this has anything to do with the war. And no, we're not allowed to say that. But if you just look at the numbers, more Russian crudes coming to market than was coming to market in February. That's just yeah. it. And, and, and a guy like Dees, he must know that. He must know that. Yeah, they know this. Uh, as I've said, they are either, as the, uh, um, the Bloomberg guy said, shockingly naive about, about gas prices or whatever, uh, or they're lying. They're just well, literally lying. So. I, I think I think it was God, it was one of our friends. I, I wish I could remember who. Maybe U.S. Oil and Gas Association. It was somebody who, who tweeted back to the White House that, "Hey, man, um, you know, great tweet, but whichever intern posted it up for you, make sure they sign up for Econ 101 this semester." Right. Right. Exactly. That's yeah. always pretty funny. Uh, okay, so I have a piece here from Bloomberg. Yeah, eGov, Bloomberg Gov. Uh, it's an it's a legal analysis piece. Um, West Virginia versus EPA threatens all regulation. Mm-hmm. From a, a attorney named Richard Revez. Yeah, Rich Revez. He's um he's up at uh, he's up at the City University of New York, right? Or is he NYU? He's NYU. He's with the um, regulatory program at NYU. He's a um, he, he he tilts pretty pretty hard to the left. What did what did what did Professor Revez have to say for himself? Yeah, you're right. He's professor of law, Dean Emeritus, NYU School of Law, right? Yeah. Um, he okay. So for for setup for all those who you know don't follow this as closely as we do, the Supreme Court ruled at the very end of this whirlwind of a session uh, in the case that we've been teasing out a couple of episodes of the. Uh, West, it was called West Virginia versus EPA. And it was the question was whether or not the Obama plan, the what they called the clean power plan, what we call the creating poverty plan, um, was uh, legit. Uh, in other words, did the EPA overstep their authority? And the court ruled on June 30 in a 6-3, which basically struck down the whole plan. Um, it, and it did so, and this, this now I'm pulling it from Revez, this, it did so by invoking the major questions doctrine, which made its appearance for the first time in a majority opinion. For now, most EPA climate regulations can proceed, though power sector rules will be somewhat constrained. But the court's pointedly vague, pointedly vague invocation of the major question doctrine, doc, questions doctrine cast a long shadow over the future of regulation. The Roberts majority opinion concluded that such generation shifting from higher emitting to lower emitting producers of electricity requires clear congressional authorization as the result of the major questions doctrine, primarily because of the program's, quote, economic and political significance and the agency's discovery of a, quote, unquote, unheralded power. So uh, the article went went on uh, to describe how this has the potential to kind of uh, put throw into question a whole lot of other uh, future attempts to regulate um, by sort of, you know, kind of doing an end around Congress. Um, um, and, and so that's, you know, this is kind of a little bit of a teaser because we're going to bring somebody, I think we're going to bring someone in next week to kind of talk about this in a little bit more detail. Uh, and kind of get into the implications for some of the major things that we've been talking about here uh, on the unregulated podcast, including the, you know, the rules that require uh, mandating electric vehicles and everything else. Yeah, Uh, It was a huge, huge case. And I know you've been, you've been on the circuit too. I caught uh, a bit of you on C-SPAN going at it with a member of our friends at the NRDC or Sierra Club. Which one was that? NRDC, Bob Dean's a Richmond guy. He's a good guy. I mean, he, you know, like all these guys, he was nothing but a nothing but a bunch of talking points and, you know, um, you know, incapable of sort of well, incapable. Didn't want to answer any questions. Yes, I did notice he was sticking to his bullets. Yeah, you know, these environmental guys, they're all the same, right? They get their talking points, they repeat them. I like it, but there's a reason why they're they're losing and have been losing now for 40 years. Um so Professor Revez is a different kettle of fish, right? He's actually a, a pretty good legal thinker and is a is a bit of a truth teller. Um, he's right, right? That that what the court did is going to have pretty pretty broad implications across the across the governmental enterprise, not just about 
environmental statutes, but anybody who's out over their skis with respect to congressional authorization on major rules, right? Um, right away, you know, the SEC climate risk disclosure package uh, that that proposed rules at risk. Uh, uh, FERC's pipeline orders, I'm sure, would be probably be included there potentially. Yeah. You know, FERC, FERC, the pipeline, the pipeline statement and the uh, climate change statement, probably a jump ball. I mean, FERC has, FERC may in fact have that authority, um, but it's going to be close, right? It's going to get litigated for sure. Well, all the more reason to continue to be, you know, uh, putting, yeah. the, you know, putting this pressure on, uh, on that. You know, on, 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 can't on assume the- any of this stuff will simply just go away. These guys are not going to, especially yeah. after the midterms when they, theoretically get you know pounded um they're they're gonna definitely go back to the obama pen and phone playbook and by the way justice gorsuch in his concurring opinion referenced pen and a phone regulating uh in his in in his opinion i thought that was pretty cool i did too let's put it this way um the the left in this country has constructed the administrative state over the last 100 years um approximately since the back end of the Wilson administration, they are not going to just let everybody unravel it in a matter of two days. Yeah. So it's going to be a fight. But like I said, the SEC thing's at, at some risk, at pretty great risk, I would think. The FERC stuff is at some risk. Um, the other thing that's at risk is the EPA tailpipe rule, because that's got embedded in it uh, an EV mandate to meet the requirements. I think it require you to sell about 17% of your vehicles. Uh, be electric vehicles by 2026. And that's actually, EPA was careless enough to put that in the rules preamble. Um, I, I believe that's probably gonna, gonna have to come out because EPA not only has no clear congressional authorization for that, they have no congressional authorization for that. So, I, you know, I, it, it's gonna be a thing and it's gonna happen, labor, environmental, health, everybody's eventually gonna pick it up against whatever, whatever rule they think treats them poorly is going to get litigated. And we're going to spend, um, we're going to spend 10 years now, I think in a litigation cycle, trying to figure out what's a major question and what's not. And you know what? I'm perfectly okay with that. Oh yeah. Uh, look, we, I think we said this already. This, this is the beginning, right? We're going on offense now. So. Yeah. And that's a great way to say it. I'm perfectly content to spend 10 years on offense and, and let, and let the administrative state, get a little bit of our taste of life being on the defensive all the time and and also you know uh, it will force them to rethink their strategy uh on capitol hill uh it'll force everyone including us uh to rethink our strategy on capitol hill which is if you want something passed if you want like you know if you want to make some changes you got to go through congress big shocker i know but uh, it's been uh, how long since Congress has has been near completely, if not completely, dysfunctional in the system that we're in. Well, it's funny that came up in the C-SPAN thing, and and um, you know, I said, hey, here's a simple answer. You don't like it? Congress can um, Congress can legislate, right? Super easy, super simple. We got the process all laid out in the Constitution. It's not complicated. <laughs> and the the host. You know, she she kind of well that you know, sixty votes. What do you have sixty votes for? And I, I, and I didn't get to, but I almost wanted to say, you know what? That's not my problem. Right. If Congress and and this came up in the ruling itself, in the in the majority opinion itself, Congress. It wasn't like Congress hadn't thought about cap cap and trade. They, the, majority, the majority said, look, Congress has thought about this, considered it, and voted against it. Right. Right. You, you, Killed it. it. Yeah, and yet you guys are proceeding to do it. And that, that's got to be a no-no. Yeah. So I'm thinking to myself, how many other times has Congress considered something and voted against it or not voted for it? And administrative agencies have done it anyway. And now I'm back to the tailpipe rule, right? And the SEC, if, you're, if you think about it from a Republican standpoint, you're going to have at least one House of Congress. It now serves your purpose to have these conversations vote against them or vote for them or whatever. But just not have them to get through Congress, because then you can legitimately go to the courts and say, Congress has had an opportunity to speak on this and has refused to or has failed to or has not or has said no. How how amazingly refreshing would it be if the if the Republican if there was a Republican majority that did this strategy, right, that said, all right, you guys have been 
talking about this and griping about this. Here you go. Let's vote. Yeah. And, and you know, it, it make them accountable, make the members accountable. That's correct. that's exactly what needs to happen. Correct. 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 Uh, so he just I'll throw one more thing in here just to kind of uh, close out this uh, from Mr. Rivez. By far, the greatest threat to regulations of all types comes from the court's enshrinement of the major questions doctrine as a key technique of statutory interpretation. This doctrine casts an ominous pall over the nation's regulatory future. <laughs> Let's hope so. Um, Amen, brother. <laughs> it, 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 here's here's the problem right at the heart of this thing. If you're if you're um, if you're a person on the left, here's the fundamental problem that you can't get around, get over, or get through, and it's this: once you accept judicial review as a legitimate role of the courts, right? That it's courts' responsibility, uh, in the words of John Marshall, to say what the law is. Once you accept that. And the entire architecture of the administrative state is built on that. Um, you can't come back and say, well, yeah, we mean that, except for in the cases of major doc major questions doctrine. It's, yeah. it's a natural outgrowth of judicial review. And that's why it's gonna be, it's gonna, you know, it's not just gonna be folks on the right in the courts, it's going to be everybody in the courts ultimately who are gonna be, I wanna be in on this. I want Yeah, and you know, it's like that originally what Congress was supposed to do, right? Like they're supposed to pass something and then things change. So go ahead and tweak it, right? Why have we had an uh, amendment to the Clean Air Act since 1990? Yeah, man. I, I, it's insane. It's, it's 32 years. I feel kind of old when we talk about yeah. that. Like, uh, these things are supposed to be evolving, right? If something, if they pass something, this is what the intent was, right? And then if things change circumstances change the nature of of the, the the types of pollution that are that are out there change change the laws right get rid of stuff that is no longer necessary for the books uh clean it up yeah well i mean you know just, just think about the think about the timing right first clean air act was 1970 the second set of amendments was 1977 third set of amendments was 1990 we got two very small amendments in 1990 I'm sorry, 1990. We had two very small amendments in 1996. Uh, five, six, six. Um, so we had four sets of amendments in 26 years. We are now um, 30 years on from the last, 32 years on from the last major set of amendments. We've done nothing. That would lead you to believe Congress is like perfectly okay with what's in the act. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Anyway. All right. Um, okay. I want to move back to SCOTUS, if you don't yeah. mind, unless you want to, you want to roll something out. No, go ahead. All right. This piece came from your friend. Uh, oh, and by the way, uh, in your C-SPAN interview that uh, the interviewer was my, my friend Greta. So like from way back in the day. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Yeah. She used to run with us. She used to hang out with us on the, on the capital, that little Capitol Hill crew that we had. So good. Yeah. She, she, uh, okay. she was a nice lady and i thought she was a fair questioner although she did let bob have the last word a couple too many times but, uh, but, well he was also talking about that i'll have to talk to her about that he had been a guest more than i had right this is like his fourth or fifth time we walked in he knows everybody i'm like okay this doesn't you feel gotta, like a up at all yeah you gotta get in that circuit pal you got a lot to say <laughs> yeah save it for the unregulated podcast actually all right so this is from your friend steven dinan yeah at our friends at the Washington Times. This is from yesterday. Uh, Roberts Kavanaugh helped liberals notch small victories in the Supreme Court. It starts out, as goes Justice Brett M. Kavanaugh, so went the Supreme Court, at least over the recent term. Flip his vote and his and Roe remains precedent, albeit with major loopholes, et cetera. Justice Kavanaugh and Chief Justice Roberts emerged as the majority makers for the court joining the majority decision in all but three of the court's roughly 60 decisions on argued cases, according to data compiled by Empirical SCOTUS. Um, the, let's see. The two Republican appointed justices were also responsible for more than half of the cases in which the court's liberal bloc emerged as victors in 5-4 rulings, delivering a few key wins to Mr. Biden on executive powers, in what was otherwise a brutal term 
for the political left. I didn't read the article, right? I saw the headline. I, I you know, it hard to complain about a hard to complain about a term like this one, right? And oh, oh, absolutely. I bring this up because it, um, it, it, it is gaming out to what we've been talking about with with Roberts and Kavanaugh, for that matter. They are, they are, if they, they kind of team up and uh, kind of cross the line uh, and, and they're the ones who kind of swing, they're, they're kind of, it, it's a little bit too early to figure out what the long-term trends of this court's going to be, but uh, there's definitely a, a conservative block, um, which is basically Thomas Alito, Gorsuch and Barrett, right? Like yeah, they're yeah. pretty much, you know, so, joined at the hip um, and, you know, Kavanaugh, is largely there uh and and tom uh, roberts is just i think he's just very concerned about public opinion and public sentiment well yeah i mean it's a 432 court right uh, you know you and i would not have picked brett kavanaugh the good news is is that um you know the left is doing everything in their power to radicalize him um yeah that is true you know Especially you saw those Especially when you're going, when the president goes completely silent on an assassination attempt. Right, exactly. You know, I, I'm thinking about two things one trivial, one material. One's the assassination attempt, right? Now, a month ago or six weeks ago, the president has yet to say anything about it. Um, but he did attack the court over, over the um, Dobbs decision when he was over in Bavaria, palling around with his European house in the G7. Um, the other thing I'm thinking about is something trivial, right? The, you probably saw this, the left, a bunch of protesters basically um, protested outside of Morton's the other day when Kavanaugh was in there having dinner. Um, that's Morton's down on um, uh, 19th yeah, my, Street, right? That's my, uh, my, my cigar spot. Yeah. So, um, so it, 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 it's a, that kind of thing is going to serve to radicalize someone like Kavanaugh, right? Because you know, he's a he's a DC guy. You know, he, he grew up here, he gets the city. Um, you know, he he I imagine he thinks that there should be some sort of level of of um, comedy, um, but he's not going to get any of it. You know, right? there's no hiding place for him. You know, the people from outside of town they know that there's no hiding place. But you know, he's he's a Georgetown prep kid. You know, he. he He's expecting like the rules, you know, going to be divided by it, and they're just not anymore. Yeah, absolutely. So the article goes on to kind of, you know, game out what what this means for like the longer term, but but it concludes generally that it, it's too early to tell. But um, the analysis is that um, Justice uh, Gorsuch crosses the line every now and then, has sided with the liberals, uh, but it is absolutely clear that. Uh, depending, like you said, on, on how uh, successful the liberals are radicalizing Kavanaugh, that um, they're, they're definitely more, more middle of the road. Uh, but, you know, the road has, has veered in, our, in, in, the, in a positive conservative. You we know, need one more. Or, um, you know, a direct to the Constitution direction, which is. is, is hey, what we, is need one. we need one more. Yeah, we yeah. need one. We need we need we need one more to keep everybody in line. And that's just the way it is. Yeah. All right. Well, um, speaking of uh, assassination, d this Abe thing in Japan is just mesmerizing to me. As you know, uh, as you know, the uh, former prime minister, is that what they call him in, in Japan? Yeah. Premier, prime uh, he's a prime minister. Abe uh, was stumping, I guess, for the conservatives and was shot by like some makeshift gun type device and died. Yeah, uh, it, it um, you know, it, it, it's terrible. It's terrible. And, uh, you know, <laughs> I, I give, I'll give the Biden, I give team Biden full credit. You know, President Obama said, oh, I was shocked and saddened which, you know, is kind of a running gag in D.C. Whenever somebody, right. you know, you does something you don't like, you're saddened and sickened, they're shocked and amazed, they're shocked and saddened. You know, the, the Biden guys came out with a much stronger statement. It was absolutely terrible and, and you know, awful and bad. I mean, they really, they, they, 
they were clearly upset about it and they should be. It's, um, you know, we're not talking about Costa Rica, or, I don't know, Costa Rica. We're not talking about Venezuela here. We're talking about Japan. I mean, it, it, I, I, I have no idea when the last political leader in Japan was assassinated, but I bet it was a long, long time ago. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, uh, Shinzo Abe served a very long, he had a long uh, service as prime minister, uh, kind of started, I think, back with Obama. He did. Um, and something you probably don't know is he is actually a friend of a friend of the podcast. Uh, oh, very and, cool. Yeah, he and he and he and Jim Lucier were very close. Mm. Well, I, I, we're going to learn more about this and sort of what the motivation was. But, you know, it really, as my wife said, it just like this doesn't happen in japan like this is like a like a head scratcher right it's a shocker right it, yeah. it's, it's a shock which which may tell you something about how we think about the world you know, yeah you know, if it had happened someplace else we'd be like yeah whatever but you know it happened in japan you're like whoa you know it used to be everybody was like whoa everywhere but now it's kind of become unfortunately routine like assassination threats on Supreme Court justices. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, anyhow, one thing that is not a, a shocker or uh, even remotely surprising to me, Bojo's gone. Yeah. Can you explain to me why he was there in the first place? <laughs> Boris Johnson, uh, uh, of course, in the typical Bojo fashion, didn't resign immediately. He said, oh, I'm going to hang out on 10 Downing until... You guys decide who's going to replace me. So I'm just going to hang out and party and it doesn't matter anymore. Uh, so very good question. And I'm going to let a guy named Joseph Sternberg answer it from the Wall Street Journal yesterday. Don't worry if you're confused, because plenty of veteran observers of British politics are, too. To Mr. Johnson's many critics, his dishonesty, finding expression in a casual flippancy about policy and politics that matched his careless appearance with that infamous mop of blonde hair, was disqualifying from the start. Why do polls suggest voters started noticing only in the last few months? He went on to describe Bojo as um, a, a basically rudderless, uh, you know, poll who famously shifted uh, whichever way he felt like he could, could gain an advantage with the voters. Um, until it caught up with him, basically, um, what, which he went on to say that he succeeded because many voters thought those critics were the butt of the joke. But when it became clear to the voters that the joke was on them, that's when the tide turned. So that that's his explanation for it. Uh, obviously, he was involved in, a, a, you know, three or four quick dustups but my uh, my analysis is a little bit different the the day that boris johnson wrapped his arms around the greens was the day that his number that his days were in fact numbered and that's my take my take on it yeah i mean i think that's probably there's probably some truth to that i just um i never got how can anybody look at this guy and think, yeah, that's a guy I want to have lead me. I mean, he, 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 to me, and I know this is funny coming from me, but to me, he always looked like a guy who slept in his clothes and woke up and just ran into a meeting. Yeah. Yeah. I know which I've done quite <laughs> on a couple of occasions, but I don't have any hair. So it's a little bit easier for me to get away with it. Uh, but here's, you know, I, I was one of those I've, I've readily admitted. I was one of those who was bamboozled by the guy because I was so pro brexit um that like i i kind of got sucked into his his trap in the article i just read uh he describes the fact that bojo bragged privately about how he had a pro and anti-brexit statement drafted <laughs> depending on what way he was going to decide to go right <laughs> um but here's the thing like and i want to talk about this green stuff a little bit and and i want to throw on throw this out from the way back machine this was an editorial in the wall street, wall street journal back in april of this year boris johnson's uk energy crisis inflation rising energy prices are roiling democratic politics around the world and britain is a prime example 
But while the rest of Europe is getting serious about energy policy, which is questionable, in the wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson is drifting further into the clouds. For, for instance, Johnson increases what already was an ambitious target for offshore wind to 50 gigawatts in 2030 from the previous goal of 40. Uh, they're currently tapping at around 11, right? And there was just uh, an article about the cost of the transmission of that supposed fantasy of 50 gigawatts of offshore, right? This is a guy who, again, hugged fracking, right? Was embracing fracking, was for it before he was against it. And then, um, for example, he, during this whole thing and the run-up to this, he, he promised to issue more licenses for oil and gas in the North Sea, but then he subjected them to all this climate stuff, right? So again, like here, no way they're gonna, these people are gonna bother investing, right? Yeah. So the article goes on, but this is the close. And this is what Mr. Johnson's obsession with climate change is leading the Tories toward deep electoral trouble. So the Wall Street Journal guys got it right. No doubt about it. Yeah, it, it, I guess that's the problem, right? Once you, once you start, once you start um, shedding your friends when you need them, yeah, they're, they're somewhere else. Yeah. So bye-bye, Bojo. Actually, I guess you'll be hanging around for a while until your Tories figure out who your replacement is, but you probably should have stepped out a little bit sooner than that. Right. You know, on the, on the hundred in, in the, in the hundredth anniversary of the summer of the civil war in Ireland, it's really hard for me to care too much about English politics. How about if I say it that one? <laughs> I hear you. All right. We lost another one, Michael. Who? Why? What did I lose? Jimmy Khan. Oh, yeah. Bronx native. Just want to point that out real quick. Born consummate, consummate performer. Hilarious guy. Like, ridiculously funny. He, he, he had the funniest thing I think I've ever heard. It's, it's a complete New Yorker thing. Um, and only a New Yorker could get away with it. He said that in New York, he had twice been elected Italian american of the year in new york city <laughs> and he of course was not an italian american no but uh, <laughs> of course uh santino corleone was yeah. sure an italian <laughs> <laughs> he should have got the easy pass lay out the extra bucks for the easy pass oh uh, so um he he one of the th things that obviously there's all this reminiscing about him and and by the way like that's two of our guys we lost ray liotta too so all, all of our mobsters are dying on us it's it's a sad thing tom but it comes around to everybody you know what i mean but his uh he back in the day he gave an interview um with playboy yeah i don't know if you heard about this uh and there's a couple of lines from it uh Playboy's guy the interviewed said, but were you talking about why you don't, but you were talking about why you don't like to do interviews, Khan. That shouldn't come as a surprise with schmucks like you to work with. No offense. As my friend Mel Brooks said in his Playboy interview to another one of you beep holes, oops, there I go again, sorry. You're really not as bad as this guy who did, did an awful, I mean, unbelievably stupid interview with me a year ago. At the end, trying to be cute, he said, what's the dumbest question? you've ever been asked in an interview i thought for a second and said that's it <laughs> you may not like interviews said the playboy guy but you seem to be having a pretty good time doing this one so far no thanks to you shit face was his response <laughs> yeah, anyway. that's that bronx charm coming through I yeah yeah my, i fought my whole life against that kind of thing it's it's a it, it's a lifelong struggle to become a human being once you've lived in the bronx <laughs> Uh, okay, so I'm pretty much done. I got a couple of things to close it up. So I got to turn the host, the host microphone over to you. Yeah, I just got two things I want to want to point out real quick that were in the news. Um, one of them you probably missed because it actually wasn't in the news. Stuart Kirk, you do not remember that name, um, but if I tell you where he used to work, you will. Stuart Kirk was a uh, um, chief of sustainable investing, I think, or responsible investing for HSBC. And Is that the one who gave the interview? That's the one. No, he actually, gave, it was the, uh, no, the PowerPoint on the that's right. of climate risk. That's right. That's our boy, Stuart. Yeah. Um, 
he announced his resignation yesterday. Um, Ooh, my guess that's is, good. My guess is they forced him out. Um, he also said that he was going to actually start up an investment fund. He didn't say investment fund, but he's going to start up a project. He means investment fund focused on legitimately responsible investing and legitimate oh. investing. I'm super looking forward to, to good for him. And that, that, com- that's, uh, that's another uh, notch, uh, you know, what this is a market signal in and of itself, right? Like mm-hmm. that there are people who are happy to announce, bring your money here. If you're not into this ESG garbage. I am, I am very much looking forward to, um, finding out what, what um, Stewart's minimum investment is and looking forward to giving him whatever, whatever <laughs> that is. That's probably more. Um, well, you, good luck on you, but I have a strong feeling that I won't be in the bidding for a, any kind of minimum investment in his firm. So I bet you he'll set it, you he'll set it fairly low. I bet you will be a fairly democratic firm. We'll find out. Huh? When, when it, well, I would have to be really democratic for me to be in. I've, I've seen some of these minimum bids before, so. Yeah, well, seriously. Um, that's thing one. Thing two is, um, news item two is um, Isaac uh, Dover uh, with CNN uh, Politico uh, wrote another story about the, about the incompetence of the Biden administration. This one was focused around, um, around their inability to effectively message on the Dobbs decision and had a couple of nuggets that I really liked. One of them was general counsel and White House counsel. White House counsel was certain it was not going to come out the day it actually came out in fact the day before she had said it's not going to come out that day bang it shows up she was so certain in fact that the press person in charge of responding had gone to get coffee that morning at 10 a.m instead of sitting there getting ready to hit send on a message you know we have said this repeatedly and i want to say it just one more time um competence is infectious so is incompetence it if you can't manage to do the small things well you are not going to be able to manage to do the big things well and the dover story competence i mean competence like getting our podcast out on time that's exactly (laughs) what i mean um except for us we're getting it out yeah buddy and truthfully the only people who set that well i'm not going to talk about who sets the time it's only important to a couple of people not us um this administration is not good at anything, whether it be vetting speeches or understanding when the Supreme Court's tempo, or you know what they didn't even have a they didn't even have a statement ready. It's incredible to me they didn't have a statement ready. You just pointed out that Bojo had two statements ready on Brexit. One yes, <laughs> one no. That's a competent politician right there, right? Yeah. Hey, we want to be careful. White House didn't even have a statement on this thing. They're I'm, I'm, I know that Jimmy Carter had a worse record. I know that Abraham Lincoln was more murderous, but this administration might be the worst I've ever seen, might be the worst in American history. Um, and, and on cue, Kate Beldingfeld, the director of communications, announced she was leaving. How somebody leaves the White House in July of an election year, I, I'm certain I have no idea. A senior official, assistant to the president, and she's leaving. Um, just to make it more painful, the Washington Examiner had a story out today, actually hit last night, about how the three times as many Biden folks had left in the first year uh, as had left in the Trump administration or the Obama administration. Um, yeah, but he won't actually fire the people he needs to fire. Kim Strassel made that point in the Wall Street Journal, and I thought it was a great point, something I've been saying for a year now, that he really needs to fire a couple of people. The problem is the people he needs to fire are all his old friends. So he's not going to do that. Right, right. Anyway, between the Dover story, Feldingfeld, and the Washington Examiner story, you know, we are we are now getting a lot of independent confirmation of what we have been saying for a year, and that is these guys just aren't very good at anything. Yeah. Uh, and and I and I mean that in the most respectful and polite way. Um that's it for me. Um, the Yankees, of course, beat the Red Sox last night, and that's good. Um, you know, one more, and we get to split the series and get home to Yankee Stadium and see what happens there. Yes, indeed, absolutely. It was a good game too. Um, okay, so um, hey, don't so, pitch to Devers. What the hell? Yeah, I know it's crazy. They always don't pitch to him. He's Walk. a killer. He he is a this Yankee killer. 
The guy I, is a Yankee killer. Just, I mean, I thought when they walked out to the mound, what they were going to say is, "Just walk this guy." Just yeah, pitch around him. Yeah. Yeah, just they made it. it. They, they made it more. Uh, uh, more interesting than it needed to be. They had to absolutely uh, go Yanks. Okay, so I've got one. Uh, I got two two quick things, uh, and then we can close this. Every once in a while, you just gotta laugh. Um, I've uh, I found this uh, from the sort of that you know that libs of TikTok Twitter. Yeah, yeah. yeah this guy is reacting to Dobbs. I want to play this clip for our audience. Stop sending me. Stop sending me fundraising requests right now, okay? The Republican Party had a plan for the last 50 years to overturn Roe v. Wade. We had a, a leak five weeks ago telling us that this exact thing was going to happen. And your response after five weeks of careful study and planning and thought has been to send us nonstop fundraising emails. <laughs> All right, so I got one more. Let's close it out with the Biden plan to fight inflation. Again, we understand what the American people are feeling. We're doing everything that we can. We have a plan. Here's the thing. We have a plan. Republicans do not have a plan. What they want to do is take away rights uh, from the American people. Uh, long story short, you're going to be reading a bit today about your secret plan to fight inflation. I have a secret plan to fight inflation. No. Why am I going to be reading that I do? It was suggested in the press room that you did. By who? By me. You told the press I have a secret plan to fight inflation. No, I did not. Let me be absolutely clear. I did not do that. Except, <laughs> yes, I did that. But, <laughs> <laughs> so you, you, now you understand the secret, Mike. They're modeling their entire administration. Oh, God help us. <laughs> on the West Wing. <laughs> All right, folks, that is a wrap for this episode of the Unregulated Podcast. Peace out. Have a day. Bye.